0: I've asked Naam to come and share from God's Word uh, and just to challenge us and to encourage us biblically. And so, again, would you welcome Naam O'Brien as he comes to share God's Word with us? Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10 is a familiar passage. The parable of the Good Samaritan. We'll begin reading. And verse 30. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side but a certain samaritan as he journeyed came where he was and when he saw him he had compassion on him and he went to him bound up his wounds pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him and on the morrow when he departed he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him take care of him And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the robbers? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes (coughs) and our ears to hear afresh this familiar parable. Allow us to truly um, grasp what you are trying to say and not, Lord, how we have always heard it. Maybe afresh again today, in your name we pray, Amen. So you're familiar with this passage, are you not? Uh, the parable of the good Samaritan. You probably heard it many times, uh, especially if you're a seasoned saint. You've heard this parable probably preached, taught in Sunday schools uh, frequently. the The problem is, we probably heard it uh, at best from its secondary application. You know, the, the good Samaritan is a familiar concept. If you are um, watching the news and you see a, uh, on the news someone doing a good deed for someone he doesn't know, you might hear it said, oh, that person was a good Samaritan. Uh, you might have heard this as a child growing up as a reason why you ought to share your lunch with someone at school. The problem is we don't get past that secondary application. I was teaching this. What really made me want to study it more was I was teaching this to an adult men's Bible study. And for whatever reason, they latched on the idea of comparing themselves to the Good Samaritan. And they wanted to uh, justify themselves in a sense like how many times they had stopped on the side of the road as men to help people who had a flat tire or to help someone in need, to give someone some funding. I would submit to you That if you're comparing yourself to the good Samaritan, you've already missed the point. Jesus is not teaching us here how to be a good neighbor, although that is an application from the text. At best, it would be secondary or third application of being a good neighbor. Jesus' point here is to show us that we haven't been good neighbors. So that, that's the point here. And so I, I immediately read midway through the passage. If you ever hear a, a, a preacher or pastor do that, uh, perk your ears up, because there's a chance he's trying to pull the wool over your eyes like I just did. I'm, I was setting us up for failure, because I read the parable without the context. Very dangerous thing to do. But now let's go and read the context. Go back to Luke chapter 10. Let's begin in verse 25. <clears throat> and behold, a certain lawyer stood up, And tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is the context. So, we need to explain a few things. Well, what is a a lawyer? Well, a lawyer is an expert in the Mosaic law. He was one that had probably the entire Old Testament, at least the five books of Moses, memorized. He would have been an expert in Judaism, in this law. So much so that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they were having their combatants with the dialogues with Jesus, they would often have with them a lawyer, or in another text it would say scribe, one and the same person, they would have a lawyer or a scribe with them so that they would consult with the lawyer or the scribe, asking them, give us some material. Did Jesus answer that correctly, or can we ha- do we have something against him? They would consult the lawyer for, for information to stump Jesus. It is not a coincidence, then, that Jesus doesn't have kind words to say about the lawyers and the scribes. Remember one text, he actually said, You whitewashed tombs, you hypocrites. They weren't friends, is the, the idea that I'm getting across here. With that being said, we have no inclination in the text itself that the lawyer is, is up to no good. We, we front load that in from all the other texts that, that deal with lawyers and Jesus. There's rarely a time where a lawyer and Jesus is having a good time together. We, we, we suggest that the lawyer is up to no good here. The text even, the English even reads uh, that into it a little bit when it says that the, the lawyer stood up and tempted him. The actual Greek is, is the idea that he it could be a clarifying idea. I'm just trying to clarify something that you had taught Jesus. So I'll say that as a, as a background. It could be that the lawyer is, 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 is really genuinely wanting to know this answer. However, from all the other texts that we know with lawyers and Jesus, it's probably up to no good. Okay, so the lawyer probably has bad intentions. And so he goes up and he's testing Jesus, or tempting Jesus. And what does he say? Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is a key phrase. It's not the first time Jesus was asked this. Uh, remember that time when uh, the, the, the rich young ruler came to Jesus? And he says, ruler ask him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? And there's no one good except God alone you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. I'm I'm giving you my paraphrase just so you know. Do do not commit false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus heard this and said, there's one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. And what happens, the rich young ruler turns away and walks away sad. Because yeah, that was the one thing that he was unwilling to give up to submit to the Lordship of Christ and follow him. He walks away sad. What does this tell us about this question, though? It's a question that at least twice appears to Jesus' ministry. Jesus interacts with this question at least twice. And what's interesting about it is, is the actual the, the phrasing that the lawyer do. What must I do to inherit eternal life? All the Jews were, were seeking eternal life. They were wanting eternal life as most religiously-minded people are. But notice how he was wanting to attain it. What can I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do? What's interesting about that question is he is wanting to work his way into eternal life. Paul recognizes this in Romans chapter 10, where he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Here's how. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, meaning by faith, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit submit to God's righteousness. So here's the Jews seeking the righteousness of God, seeking eternal life, but they're doing it with their own righteousness. On a basis of their own righteousness, not God's righteousness, which he extends by faith. That's the background to the Good Samaritan. So the lawyer comes up. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice what Jesus says. And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? What's interesting about this question is this. Now I'm not saying Jesus was prone to sarcasm, but there is a sarcastic element to this. You're the expert in the law. You tell me what it says. That's essentially what Jesus does. He pushes the question back on him. And he actually says, how readest thou? That question, is, that, that, that statement's interesting. It, it kind of gives this connotation of how do you recite it? And what is Jesus referring to here? Well, he's referring to what is, uh, we call now, and it was even called back then, the, the, what they call the Shema. And the Shema is a, is a collection of statements That the Jew would wake up in the morning and recite, they would recite it many times during the day, and they would go to bed reciting it. It is, among other things, uh, a a certain statement, and we see what the lawyer answers here. The lawyer answers, and he answered, "Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. I'm sorry. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself." Included in the Shema is that statement. Was he correct? Jesus was asked a very similar thing in Matthew 22, if you remember, where the Pharisees come and they ask him what the greatest commandment in the law was. And Jesus says, you shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments depend the entire law and the prophets. So here you have Jesus. Being addressed, he asks the lawyer essentially the same question, and the lawyer gives him the exact answer that Jesus gave in a similar example. So we all say, did he answer correctly? Yes, he did. So much so that Jesus actually says, Thou hast answered right, in verse 28. Now here's the clincher. Here's the the great, uh, the great answer from Jesus. Do that, or do this, or this do, and thou shalt live. It's connected with eternal life here. What must you do? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your neighbor as yourself. You do that, and you'll live. What's the problem with this? No one can do this. So let's go, why why can no one do this? Well, first of all, the the, the actual statement itself, the the statement in the Shema, uh, the Jews took it, Uh, Quite literally, and what what I mean by that is Moses actually gave the commandment uh, in in Deuteronomy chapter 11. We won't take the time to read it, but Moses gave the commandments, uh, and he says essentially that you should lay these up, these words of mine, in your heart and in your soul, and when you bind them on on your sign, uh, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, you shall teach them to your children. talking of them when they are sitting in your home and when you are walking by the way, when you lie down when you rise, hence morning and evening. uh, You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So there's a bunch of uh, commands that Moses is giving as to the, the Shema. And what do the Jews do? Well, very literally, to this day, if you go to an Orthodox Jewish home, you can often see the Orthodox Jew wearing a box on his hands, a box between his eyes. Guess what's contained in the box? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They wake up in the morning, they read it, or they recite it, they will go to bed reciting it. Guess what's on their doorposts? There's a little container on their that They nail into the, to the, to the frame of the door, contains the Shema. They took it very literally. What Jesus is exposing here is they didn't take it into their hearts. Okay, so you can do it outwardly, but you can't do it inwardly. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? What is it love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? Well, the, the, the statement itself comes from basically two commandments. So the Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then they combine it with Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you should love your neighbor as yourself. So they add those two, you get this, this great two commandments, and Jesus says on these two uh, rests the whole law. And so what does it mean? <clears throat> well, to love your heart, love the good Lord your God with all your heart, uh, is to love him with all your faculties, or all the power that you possess. You shall love him supremely, more than all other beings, all other things, with all the, the, the ardor that you can, you can rise up within yourself. To love him with all your heart is to fix your affections supremely on him more strongly than on anything or anyone else and be willing to give up all that you hold dear at his very command. That's to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Notice the all. It gives the impression and the implication of you are to do this all the time, all the time, perfectly. Okay, that's the impression here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, All the time, perfectly. What about the soul? That means with all your life, it means be willing to give up your life for him, to devote it to his service, to live for him, and to be willing to die at his command. All the time, perfectly. What about your mind? Submit your intellect to his will, to love his law and his gospel more than we do the decisions of our own minds. To be willing to submit your faculties and your learning to his teaching and his guidance, To devote all your intellectual uh, capabilities to Him, to study of Him, and all the results are are to His uh, commands all the time perfectly. And don't let's not forget your strength. You are to do all these three uh, with all the faculties of your soul and body, to label and to work for Him and for His glory, and to make His name the great object of all your efforts all the time perfectly. You see the, the common theme here is that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time perfectly. And you see the dilemma now that the lawyer is in. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Love God all the time perfectly with every ounce and fiber of your being. Don't fail once because you fail once, you fail at all. What does the lawyer do? How does he respond? But he, the lawyer, willing to justify himself said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Do you you notice when he skips? He skips the entire part about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why does he do that? He knows he can't justify himself on that grounds. He doesn't even try. He goes to the second commandment. Well, who's my neighbor? Now, why does he do that? The interesting thing is, the Jews had boiled down the definition of who a neighbor is. Instead of the implication of God being love your enemies as yourself, love those who hate you, love all men, the Jews have narrowed it down to a very narrow definition, which basically meant you would to love people just like you. Now, why do they do that? Well, it's hard, isn't it? To love the Philistines and maybe other uh, pagan peoples that are raping and pillaging your people all the time. Surely God doesn't want us to love them. What about more close to the parable? What about the Samaritans? Do, do we really supposed to love the Samaritans? What happened with the Samaritans? Well, the, the people of Israel got taken off into captivity. Remember the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians taken off into captivity? Uh, some people stayed behind. Those people that stayed behind intermarried with uh, pagan cultures. So they were a kind of a mixed-race, mixed-religion people. And the, the, the ethnic Jews come back who had remained pure in their captivity... And they come back, and they want to build the temple, and they want to build the wall around Jerusalem. And guess who comes to cheer them on? The Samaritans come to cheer them on. We're glad you're back. Let us help you. Jews, no. No, thank you. We don't want you here. You're not pure like us anymore. Go away. Okay. Fine. We'll we'll, we'll stop you then. We'll fight you then. It doesn't start off well, this relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. Samaritans were not allowed to worship at the temple. So what do the Samaritans do? We'll build our own temple. Samaritans build their own temple, and guess what? Around 300 BC, the Jews come in and demolish it because that's, that's, that's heresy. So now you now you just destroyed our temple. Our relationship's not very well. By the time of Jesus' day, if you wanted to go from point A to point B, and Samaria's in the middle, you'd walk around Samaria, adding miles, sometimes even days, onto your journey, because you didn't want to walk through. Which heightens the effect when then Jesus walks straight into Samaria, sits down at a well intentionally in Samaria, and starts talking to probably one of the most defiled uh, persons of Samaria. Sitting there, talking to her would have been a huge, huge taboo. So all this to say, as much like I'm, I'm an Ohio State fan, as much as an Ohio State fan, this would be like Michigan. Okay, <laughs> We have that mutual hatred of each other. And so, on a much grander scale, on a realistic scale, the Jews and the Samaritans hate each other vehemently. So, he says, who is my neighbor? Because again, they had boiled this down to someone just like me. Definitely not a Samaritan. Just someone just like me. And so, as the man is trying to justify himself, trying to maintain some sort of righteousness of his own, Remember, that was their, their issue, their own righteousness. On that basis, then, we receive the good parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's read it again. And Jesus says, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The assumption is, this is a Jew, going from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. This is not uncommon. This was, is this was something they would have been aware of. If you were traveling through this area, you probably wouldn't travel alone because there's a chance, high likelihood of you being uh, captured and, and beaten by thieves. Uh, 300 years before Jesus' time, this was happening with the Jews. 300 years after, when the Muslims had moved in, the Muslims were doing it to each other. This is a popular place to beat up and rob people. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, a man's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho fell among thieves who stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Again, the, the insinuation here is, had not someone stopped and helped the man, he would have died. So here's a man dying on the road to Jericho. And by chance, there came a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Okay, we, can, we can invent a thousand different reasons as why the priest did this. This is a fake story. Okay, Sometimes you don't want to front load details into it to make it sound good. This is Jesus, and he has a point for telling this. Just know that the priest didn't help the man. Who is the priest? The one person in all of Israel that should have stopped and helped the man, who was a Jew, should have been his shepherd. Why wouldn't the shepherd stop and help the man? It'd be as if the pastor saw one of you on the side of the road dying and looked at you and ignored you and walked on. That would have been the severity of this. Of all people in Israel, this man should have stopped, the priest should have stopped, and he didn't, he walked on the other side. Again, remember, what is loving your neighbor? It's to love the person, the Jews thought, just like you, and the priest didn't do it. Okay, so likewise, a Levite... When he was at the place, came and looked at him and passed by on the other side. Who's the Levite? Well, he was of the religious, of the ceremonial religious family, the one who was charged with taking care of the, the temple and, uh, and all the priestly duties. He was the one in charge of this. Essentially, your elder or deacon comes, sees the man, walks by on the other side. Didn't help. But a certain Samaritan. At this point, the Jewish audience would. a gasp. Why? The mutual hatred between each other. They would have gasped. Certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, key phrase, he had compassion. Let's not give the Samaritan too much credit. The Samaritan hates the Jew just as much as the Jew hates the Samaritan. Okay, we're not we're not trying to give him this divine quality. He hates this man, but yet he had compassion on him, as opposed to the two who were supposed to love him. So the Samaritan stops and he sees the man and he has compassion on him. And he went to him. Look at the intentionality. Bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Pouring is a very liberal idea. So you get this. He's not cotton swabbing and q-tips he's dumping the oil and wine on he's not sparing any expense he wants to heal the man um and then it says that he uh he 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 took the man and set him on his own beast this is essentially ruining your day your day is done now you're devoted to helping this man Uh, you're also setting yourself up to be beaten and robbed and left half dead And so you're setting yourself up for the same thing, but this man's life is worth it. So now you're setting him up on your own beast, and you take him to an inn, and you, uh, or the Samaritan, actively takes care of him. He doesn't give off the responsibility to someone else. He takes care of him. And on the next day, or on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, which is not really impressive. He's like, okay, it's only a day's wage, two days' wage. Okay, two days' wage to give to some man for his healing. Well, when you consider the fact that an average in, a night in an inn was about oh, one thirty-second of, of a denarii or of a pence, uh, you would say that this man put up about two and a half months of rent in an inn for this man that he hates to heal. On top of that, he says, And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Again, if you don't know the, the background of this, innkeepers were notoriously corrupt it'd be like giving a criminal a blank check and saying hey whatever you spend it's good i'll pay you back that's essentially what this man's doing he's he's expecting to be taken advantage of but all for this man that he doesn't care about he had compassion and then jesus says this he breaks from the analogy breaks from the parable which, of, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the robbers? Again, this was given to the lawyer who was trying to justify himself by, by showing or, or, or giving the impression that he had loved his neighbor. And so what does the lawyer say? The one, he that showed him mercy. Other translations would say the one who showed him mercy. The impression here, the, the, insinu- the insinuation here is that he wouldn't actually use the man's ethnic name. He didn't say priest, Levite, or Samaritan. He didn't use the word Samaritan, which, what, what do we get from that? He doesn't like the person to the point that he won't even use his ethnic name. It's the one, or, or he, that shows Mercy. Now, here's, here's a great, statement number two that Jesus makes that's just, that just mind-bogglingly great. It says, go and do thou likewise. What is Jesus saying here? That you haven't loved your neighbor. That's, that's the, the point of the, the, the parable is, that, is to show that this lawyer had not left, loved his neighbor, not loved the person that he hated. How many of us are going to try to justify ourselves now in light of this passage with the suggestion that we too have loved the Lord to God with our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, and too loved our neighbors as ourselves? So, what do we take from this? What's the point of the parable then? Well, first, we conclude that salvation, eternal life, cannot be achieved by works. We read that again. Uh, the lawyer comes and says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus essentially says, love God perfectly, and love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. And the insinuation that we get from the text is, you can't. Okay, we can't achieve salvation by our works. Paul says this later, What he says is was a popular passage, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation's not by works. We're familiar with this. Okay, but that's the second point we can get from this. You have no righteousness of your own to speak of anyway. Do, do, we, do we really understand that about ourselves? We try to portray ourselves as these this, this great people that have it all together when the scripture says that even our good works are like filthy rags. like They're not worth mentioning. This man wanting to justify himself in the best way he can. I've loved my neighbor. No, you actually haven't. So we get this, that there is none righteous. As it is written, Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, because you can't complete it by the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction all have sinned fall short of the glory of God and are justified as a, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. Yeah. And so this sets us up to point three. Remember who's writing this? This is, the, this is Luke. He's writing from this post-resurrection. He understands good bi- biblical theology at this point. Oh, what is the great irony of the story that Luke is putting in here? Here is a lawyer seeking eternal life. Who is he talking to? The great irony of the story is he's talking to I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the This is the eternal life. This is the one willing to give and grant eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. This is the intentional irony. That Luke places into this story. Here's a man seeking eternal life, talking to the one who would give him eternal life had he but drop any sort of self-righteousness of his own and fall on his knees before Christ in faith and receive it. The great irony of the story is that salvation cannot be achieved by works. Why? Because you're a dirty, rotten sinner, as my wife tells me all the time. You have no righteousness of your own. But there is one who is righteous. There is one willing to grant you his righteousness that you do not deserve, that you did not achieve. You get it from him by faith. That is the great point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Have you received this great righteousness by faith? Or are you still, like the lawyer, trying to achieve it on your own? Are you you standing proud and boastful before God in your own self-righteousness, which is no righteousness at all? Are you falling before him, shadowed by his? Let's pray. Father, we ask you and pray that you would convict us if we are trying to maintain any sort of self-righteousness, We pray that you would help us to see through this facade that is common to man and help us to rely only and solely on you and your son and his work and his righteousness for our salvation. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like more information about our ministry, check out our website at battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll see you next time.